I'm Don Winslow, and you're listening to Writer Types. This is Attica Locke. Hey, this is Brian Panowicz. This is Alex Segura. This is Marsha Clark. This is Sarah Peretsky. Well, that's a good question. That's a really good question. That's interesting. You, you hit it exactly right there. This is Ian Rankin. You're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner. It's the dog days of summer, and it is hot here at Writer Types HQ, otherwise known as my converted garage office. And we have three hot authors for you today. Seamless transition. I don't know about you, but I've been working from home since the beginning of March, and there are a lot of great aspects to it. I mean, I've only been to a gas station once since then, for example. Uh, I see my family a lot more. That's nice. But one downside is that I used to read on my lunch break every day. I, I'd get in one uninterrupted hour every day to enjoy a book. But now I find that I'm scrambling to carve out reading time and it's really affecting my yearly book count. I'm gonna be much lower than last year, I think. So has anyone else's reading habits changed during COVID? Hit me up on Twitter and let me know, at writer types. We'll see you over there. Okay, well, my first guest today is here with a debut thriller called Winter Counts. David Heska Wanbley Wyden is a college professor and now author of one of the most critically acclaimed books of the year. It takes place on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota and follows Virgil Wounded Horse as he deals out vigilante justice for a price. And when it all becomes very personal, things start to spin out of control for Virgil. I connected with David from his home in Colorado. So, David, uh, first of all, you have a lot of names. Uh, I'm just going to call you Dave. Is that okay? That would be that would be just fine. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> so, Virgil Wounded Horse in your novel Winter Counts, he sort of lives by the fist. Uh, sometimes things a little more sturdy than that, uh, and he almost maybe takes it a little bit for granted, uh, you know, until his job really hits close to home. So uh, I'm going to jump in with uh, with a real deep philosophical question here. But when you confront violence like that and you have to justify it within a character, do you find that you have to hold the same feelings about violence as he does? Or can you sort of compartmentalize that with your own views uh, separate from the views of a character? Well, that's a, a great question. And for listeners out there who aren't familiar with the premise of the book, let me give a little lead up and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back to the question. I'll circle back. So in Winter Counts, uh, the main character is Virgil Wounded Horse, who is a hired enforcer. Now, the reason that he's a hired enforcer is because of the broken criminal justice system on Indian reservations. So I'm, a, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Sichangu Lakota Nation. Our reservation is in South Dakota. Now, there's a law called the Major Crimes Act passed in 1885, which says that it mandates that for felony crimes, uh, Native nations cannot prosecute them. They must hand over uh, prosecution and investigation of these crimes to the feds, the FBI and federal prosecutors. But here's the thing. The feds are declining to prosecute about one third to half of all serious felony crimes on reservations. Wow. So you might have a, a child molester or a rapist and, um, and and they he's he's in we'll make it a he he's apprehended he's in custody they hand him over to the feds and the feds you know after a week or so say well this doesn't meet our guidelines uh, we're going to release him and so he's he's free to go out and offend again 
So what has happened is there has sprung up a class of professional vigilantes. These are people that if somebody has hurt your little, your child or your sister or your mother and the feds won't do anything, you get some justice by going to guys like this. They'll beat people up for a fee. And these people really exist on reservations. It's not talked about a lot, but they really exist. That is the main character of my book. Now, the morality of being a professional vigilante is obviously something that I wrestled with uh, because I don't condone violence. I think that you should let the authorities handle transgressions. Uh, But what happens if the feds won't do anything? What happens if the person who raped your child or hurt your child is just walking around free and maybe hurting other children. I understand the impulse to get some justice. And in the book, I will say that Virgil Wounded Horse, he struggles with this as well. And so part of the arc, his arc and the arc of the book is that he struggles with the morality of being a a hired enforcer, a hired thug. And, and he tries to come to grips with it because he begins to like the beating maybe just a little too much. He begins to just <laughs> enjoy it for its own sake. So, so it's really a struggle for him to deal with the morality. And there are other issues in the book. He's, he's, a, he's what we call an ayeska, which is an, in our language means uh, it's kind of a slur. It means half-breed. So he's struggling to accept his identity. So there are a lot of different themes, I would say, in the book. But I think I've gone on long enough, so I'll stop there. <laughs> well, in you know, you raise a good point in terms of like you're you have basically an anti-hero, uh, you know, but you still have to make him rootable. I think for for the reader, I mean, he is someone who's going to carry you through the story, so he can't be doing things that are so abhorrent that you lose the readers, and yet. In crime fiction, we see so often that uh, a little good old-fashioned frontier justice is a lot of times what readers are exactly looking for, a little bit of that wish fulfillment going on, don't you think? I think there's a lot of that going on uh, in Winter Counts for sure. So so he does beat up bad people, um, and you know, I think you kind of root for him. So yeah, sure, he's an anti-hero, but he has a very strict code of ethics and justice, and I think that readers can hold on to that. I hope so anyway. Right. Now, this uh, novel started out as a short story. Is that right? Yeah, that right, that's right. Um, so I, I was in uh, an MFA program at a place called Vermont College of Fine Arts. I did transfer and finished my writing training at a school called the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I polished the story up there and published it in uh, a native a literature magazine called Yellow Medicine Review. In that story, Virgil is is killed at the end because I was deeply into, you know, noir, and I thought that he had to die. But he stayed with me for a few years. This was back in 2014. I published it. And I just, my my brain kept returning to the character of Virgil. And I I decided in about 2016 that it was time for me to to resurrect him and and see if I could really turn this into a novel-length story. Well, that's when you know you've really locked in. I mean, that's my incredibly stupid writing process is, is sort of like that where it's like I've I tend not to write stuff down in the early stages but if it's still kicking around my brain months later that's when I know ah, maybe there's something here yeah it took me a little longer than a few months or whatever it took me years <laughs> but but you know I finally uh, came around in my own slow way so it, it worked out Well, now you have uh, a veritable alphabet soup of letters after your name when you sign an email. <laughs> there's, a, there's an MFA in there, a PhD, and even some more. How many degrees do you have, David? 
Yeah, yeah. So you you emailed me on my my campus address where I I use all those. I'm a little embarrassed by all that because normally I just go by Hotmail where I don't talk about all that. So <laughs> my 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 day job is I'm a, a professor. The quick version of this is I grew up in fairly impoverished circumstances in Denver, Colorado. I'm a first generation college student. Neither of my parents graduated from college. I, I ended up going to the state school, and I took the path that a lot of poor kids take, which is go for a safe career path that you know you'll make some money. Because I never wanted to end up like my parents who died dead broke at the end of their lives and it was sad and tragic. And wow. so after, yeah, after college, I went on to law school and I did practice for a few years, but it, it really wasn't my thing. It wasn't really fulfilling, but I taught at the community college and I loved it. So I did go back to school for a PhD and and I became a professor. I'm a, a full tenured professor of Native American studies. But about 10 years ago, I decided, well, I better start writing if I'm ever going to do this, because who knows how long I've got left on this planet. So I started uh, writing, and that led to the MFA. So I'm a, a little embarrassed by all this, and I would not urge anyone to follow my path. Make a decision early on. <laughs> well, so it sounds like writing was definitely something that was always there, maybe bubbling in the background, and then, and then finally it took hold. And like you say, everyone reaches that moment of like, all right, if I'm going to do it, let's do it now. That's exactly right. So, so I, I mean, I grew up like like so many of us writers and readers, just obsessed by literature, just obsessed by it. Still am, but I, you know, growing up poor, you don't really have a framework for understanding how you can become a writer. I just didn't understand how one did this. But then later, I realized there there is a way to do this. You just have to to sit down and write. And I start off by taking classes at the local writing center. So yeah, finally, just the, the the light bulb went off. I wish I'd started earlier, but hey, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, so you spend your days educating people about Native American life and culture in the classroom. Are you taking on a little bit of that professor persona when, when you are writing a story about Virgil? Like, are you trying to show people a, a world you know, Virgil's world that they certainly probably would not be exposed to if they're not are in your classroom or living in an area like that. Yes, yes, very much so. And thank you for, for latching onto that, Eric. So, so look, a book has to be, a novel has to be, in my view, a gripping read, a good, a good tale, a page turner yeah. that's going to keep readers reading. Okay. So, so that was always my goal. But when I started writing this book, I wanted to write a book that would also educate the readers while entertaining them because there, there are some native crime writers, but not a ton. And so I wanted to write about reservation life. And I also wanted to write about some of these uh, political and legal issues that we've already talked about. The major crimes act is discussed in the book. There are other issues such as the broken healthcare system on native reservations and the problems with food distribution. You can't get healthy food on most uh, reservations. The life expectancy for a native man on my reservation is, is 47 years old, 47. Wow. That's 30 years younger than it is in, in the city for a non-native. And that's because we don't have good healthcare. We can't get decent food. And a lot of people just don't know this stuff. And so I did have a secondary goal of hopefully kind of opening people's eyes a little bit about what it is to be native, but not in a cliched way. I, I wanted, you know, hopefully to write about it in, in an honest way and a realistic way. So I hope I succeeded. 
<laughs> and are you the kind of guy who uh, like you, you latch on to a series and like, oh my gosh, this you know, there's 25 books in this series. I'm going to follow this person's story for this whole thing. I really dig into that. Do you like if, if you're a noir fan, which I've, is certainly my wheelhouse? One of the things I love about those stories is like you're saying with the shorts. Like if I'm reading a noir story, I know. People might not make it out of this alive, right. so, <laughs> which is, is, is noir have uh, more of a pull to you still? Or are you looking at the, at the long view and saying, hmm, maybe a nice 10, 12, 20 book series would be good to get out of this? <laughs> well, I'd be honored uh, if I could write even three books. There is a second uh, Virgil Wounded Horse book coming out because I did sign a, a two book deal with Echo. And I'm uh, outlining and getting ready to write the second book right now. Beyond that, we will have to see. Um, yeah, I love Noir. And I will tell you that there is a hidden tribute buried in uh, uh, Winter Counts to a Noir writer. I'm not going to disclose who it is, but I suspect oh. that folks uh, listening to this will be able to discern it. So I do love Noir. But yeah, you, it's hard to get a series going <laughs> You know, I don't think uh, Jim Thompson ever wrote too many series or, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, right. All right. Well, now, all right, now I'm interested to see if people catch these references. So uh, find us on Twitter if you, if, when you spot it and let us know if you if you found these little Easter eggs. Well, so, David, uh, a debut novel becomes with a lot of nerves, but also a lot of excitement. Which is winning out right now as we get closer and closer to release day for you? Uh, great question. I would say that it's a combination of both. Um, I'm very honored and fortunate to get some good press for the book. It was chosen as a, an Amazon uh, best book of uh, August and an Apple books best book of August. And I think I can now announce that it will be on the Indie Next Great Reads September list and Winter wow. Counts will be on that list. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that there are a lot of nerves involved here. Launching a debut novel in the middle of a pandemic has been a struggle. Yeah. It really has. I had a tour all lined up. That's all been canceled. So yeah, it's it's a little bit of both, depending on the hour and the minute. <laughs> well, I think if you uh, add up all of the press and attention of my 26 books all together, it's still, uh, I'm in your shadow here. So uh, I will be jealous and live vicariously through you as uh, Winter Counts reaches the reading public. So uh, I think this is a great opportunity for people to not only get a thrilling page turner, but to check out a character and a world that you don't often see. And I know for me, that's my big thing when I pick up a book is I want to be transported. I want to be taken out of my day to day and into another life and, and another experience that I haven't felt. So uh, this is a great opportunity for people to, to take a journey into someplace that is seldom traveled on the page. So I, I wish you the best with it. Well, thank you so much for the kind words. And I just want to say that I am standing on your shoulders the crime fiction community has been so wonderful and so welcoming. Really, the crime writing community has just been great. And, and so I'm just deeply honored uh, that anyone who writes crime fiction would give my words uh, a look. So, so truly, I, I stand in y'all's shadow and you guys have paved the way. And I, I, I hope that I can, you know, provide a few nights diversion through the book. So thank you. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. All right. Well, I'm going to talk to you uh, for the release, the release of your second book after you've 
you know, probably taken up a bunch of awards and we'll see how cocky you get by then. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I, there's no chance of that, but uh, I would be delighted to tip a beer or a cup of coffee with you and anybody else listening, that's for sure. Next up is a returning guest. Johnny Shaw is one of my favorites. I always look forward to a new one and his latest, The Southland, is on a lot of people's most anticipated lists. Now this book breaks from his normal crime comedy style as it tackles the very serious subject of immigration and poverty in America. Well, your new novel, The Southland, is this serious Johnny Shaw that we're seeing here? There's no snark, no dick jokes. What's going on here? There's probably a dick. <laughs> let's be honest. There's probably a dick joke. In it. Like, uh, but it's a more erudite kind of, you know, like you put you, you hold your pinky out when you say it. Right. No, I think something happened. Like, I think when I wrote my last book, when I wrote the upper hand and which was something that kind of started as a satire. And then we started living in satire and it just couldn't work anymore because it was about how, you know, it's the, that book is about like televangelism and what people believe and how they believe it. Yeah. Greed. And yeah. And the idea of like believing in what we need to believe anyway, it just didn't work anymore in the way the world had become. Right. And so I, I, I changed it into kind of a more, it leaned more as a comedy. Um, and so there's something about writing comedically, it comes a lot from anger and um, yet there's this quality to it that you're kind of above the fight. Like you're kind of making fun of things. Right. Yeah. I think, I think like someone like, I'm not comparing myself, but like John Stewart, I think struggled with that on the daily show. Yeah. Yeah. That you, you, you're kind of, you want to be in the fight yet you're still being kind of snarky and you're being, you're jokey about it. And so it's taking some of the gravitas away from it. And I wanted to write something that came much more clearly from kind of empathy and compassion and kindness, because the the strange thing is, is the darker stuff you write, it actually, like, I felt great. Like I was in a great mood. <laughs> like I could write the darkest stuff and feel really good. And wow. so, um, but partly because it was coming from a place of compassion. And so, and to be honest, I just wanted to flex my muscles a little. This is my seventh book. I've never I've made it really clear that I don't want to repeat myself. That yeah. Because I came from screenwriting, like I would write in three different genres in the course of a year, you know, like let alone three, like these are all still crime. This to me was just a much more fluid change because it was mostly tonal. You seem to write a lot about Southern California and the border, despite the fact that you haven't lived here in years. Almost everything I've written, I've written set in a place I lived about 10 years before. So I obviously use retrospect or like I'm looking back. So like the Southland is my LA book and I left LA in 2005, but I lived there for 12 years and it felt right. Like originally I was going to set it in Phoenix I just don't like the city of Phoenix, and I thought that would I thought I thought that was would help, um, but I uh, I haven't lived there and I didn't know it. And even though in this book is set much more in like Boyle Heights and and out in the east, and and I'll be honest, like I 
I didn't cheat on those areas. I mean, I've been to those areas and spent a little bit of time, but not nearly as much as like the place I lived in Venice Beach most of the time. Right. <laughs> there were a lot of things I was trying to do with this book. The, the three main characters are all women. They're all uh, originally Mexican national, you know, so that like I was, I knew I was, there were a lot of big red flags that I had to get right. So the LA geography was kind of, I was kind of less worried about that. Yeah. If those are the only angry emails you get or about yeah. street names, you're, you're, you won the war. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. The Southland is your LA novel. You know, a lot of people might've written about the movie industry or, you know, some of the shinier, glitzier aspects of LA, but you chose this darker immigration story. I think it's worth writing about and worth like writing about it with some sense of empathy. I mean, with the book, I wanted to do it. I don't like the way crime fiction for the most part feels like, like it needs not necessarily a white savior, but a white buffer. Meaning right. someone someone wants to write about immigration, but the, the hero is the, you know, you could John Grisham it and make a lawyer centered around that world. Nothing again with, you know, that's just, that would be the way to do it. Or a detective goes into that world. Right. And to me, it's like, I've never done that. I, I, I'm a working class writer and I kind of try to stick to that. And if you're writing drama, or if you're writing anything that has strong conflict, you should be on the ground with it. You shouldn't be above it, you know? So you should see it from that point of view. And I think, I mean, this novel, I think, does a good job. And, and it sounds like it was a clearly an intention where you could have handled a big issue like immigration and done it, you know, like say, like from like a government level and, and try to sort of get the wider scope. But it's almost like, you tell a, a more immediate story by zeroing in, like you say, on these three women and telling what is essentially a small story, but then becomes representative of the larger issue. Yeah, I wasn't trying to tell any. Like when someone told me, I mean, it got turned down by a lot of people that like when it was called like an issues book, I think by somebody like it was too much of an issues book. And and I, I didn't see that. I mean, I knew what they were saying, but the reason I initially, and this, one of the reasons I wanted to write, like I look for the underdog in my writing. That's that's the point of view and the perspective that I want to write from. It happens kind of automatically, but none of my characters have skills. That's that's kind of <laughs> kind of important. They're not, like I don't get Jack Reacher. I know those are probably good, but I just don't understand the appeal of a dude who has skills like the James Bond and that like, I want a guy that or a gal that has nothing to work with and then throw everything at them. Looking from that perspective and write like still wanting to write about immigration, there was just kind of no other choice than to write, you know, write about people that don't have cars or cell phones or money or can't go to the police. I mean, it's, 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 Whatever happens, even small or large, they're already kind of behind the eight ball. And so that was a great that was a great place to start just in terms of drama or conflict. And it wasn't the fact that they were immigrants. It was the fact that they were in that situation. And then it kind of it kind of gained its structure that way. I usually give my books an arbitrary structure um, and then stick to it religiously 
even though it's completely arbitrary. <laughs> like I'll say, like it's going to have four parts, ten chapters in each part. Each chapter is going to be around fifteen hundred words, and then I just stick to that. <laughs> it's, is this is this your warped way of giving out writing advice? Do you suggest other oh, people do this? It's, it's moronic. It's it's the <laughs> dumbest. It's the dumbest way to write a book, but it's the way I can make it because I don't outline. It's it's kind of my form of outlining, so it, it does. It's not too long or too short. So yeah, yeah. like, so I'll get through like I'm um, through three parts and I'll be like, oh, I better wind this thing up. I only got ten more chapters and. <laughs> 1500 word like I only got 15,000 words to really kind of clear this up, you know. So you've written about these places you live, but you've also traveled extensively in Europe, I know. Uh, you've, you've lived in Portland. Have you banked stories from these places uh, to write the next thing? Eastern Europe is the thing that's really fascinating me right now. The book I'm writing now is set in Mexico, and I'm almost done with it. But I'm doing, I got stacks and stacks of books uh, about Serbia or like research I'm doing and notes and, and stuff. And I, I think I have a story set in Eastern Europe. Uh, I mean, you, if you travel, you know that your perception of a place and then the reality of what that place is are going to be two different things. And right. when I went to Serbia, the uh, like on the era of the Iron Curtain, that would be a phrase. <laughs> there was like everything was Eastern Europe. I couldn't have told you the difference between Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, Yugoslavia at the time, you know? Right. And then you go, you know, you go like, oh, Romanian is a romance language, which it's right there in the name. And every association with former Yugoslavia is with the war, the Balkan mm-hmm. War in the 90s, because that's when we realized it existed. Kind of. Right. The Yugo and then... <laughs> And then the Balkan War, that's all you get. And so our knowledge of Serbia is kind of that. And so I think when some, when a writer would say like, oh, I'm going to write a book about Serbia, they're going to write about the Balkan War. And that's just totally uninteresting to me, partly because it's just already been done. The, le- the, this, the thing that people will least suspect is a comedy set in Serbia. Right. And the reason to write that is no competition. <laughs> but, but now, wait, are you, do you think you'll need the same sort of 10 years remove in order to get that? No, that no, no, because it's still for an English language audience and uh, Americans know nothing about Serbia. I can, I can literally just make everything up. Like I can, <laughs> I, like my Serbo-Croatian is terrible but it's better than yours <laughs> we'll see what happens with it i i in my brain it's really good but i haven't written a single <laughs> word i wrote the i think first page well that's a little early then to judge yeah no no it's you can tell yeah. <laughs> yeah who knows i mean honestly who knows what i'll write in 10 years you know in terms of that i might just return to the dead i thought i was done writing about the border in mexico and then there was just more to say you know well, and like you say, I mean, your seventh novel, and I mean, I, I, it sounds hoity-toity to call this like, you, you know, this is your important novel. I mean, but is is there something about the Southland that is the culmination of your writing so far? No, I don't think it's a culmination. I think I think I still have a thing that I, I, I was trying to do in Dove Season being the first book. 
that I'm getting closer to approaching, which is being able to control kind of tonal shifts in a story to the point where it works both comedically and dramatically equally. Um, this book doesn't attempt that. It doesn't attempt any sort of kind of comedic. I don't think the book is bleak, but I, I think that there is a sense of kind of balanced hope in it. But like, it's also, and it's not uh, humorless, you know. We appreciate when a writer stretches and, and a writer, uh, you know, like you say, if you are eager not to repeat yourselves. And I think for someone who follows a writer's career and is eagerly awaiting the next book, there is a little bit of a letdown when you're like, oh, I feel like I already read this one. But when you get something that is sort of really fresh and new, just from a reader's perspective, uh, I've, I really appreciate that. So well done, sir. Well, thank you. I mean, but it's also, that's from, that's a writer's point of view. I don't know if it's a reader's point of view. I think readers like when you do the same stuff, if you do it really well. There's certain authors, like, I don't want them to stretch. I'm like, just give me another Happen Leonard. I'm good. Like, what, what do I, you know, whatever. Like, like, I mean, it's selfish, but like a writer can be like, hey, cool, you stretched, but it's, I don't want to hear Iron Maiden's jazz album. Like, I don't know. Like, like, I mean, there, there is a point we have an expectation of something. So I appreciate if readers don't come along for the ride, if it's not their thing. I think writers can see that I'm, I'm not going to be the guy that pigeonholes myself. I'm not going to put myself in a box. Okay, finally on this episode is Joseph Reed. His Seth Walker thrillers feature an air marshal with a knack for getting into some serious trouble. Joseph himself is a frequent flyer, to put it mildly, and his latest departure is the third in the Seth Walker series. So Seth Walker is an air marshal, and uh, you know, frankly, I'm surprised more people didn't pick up on this occupation for a thriller character because this seems tailor-made, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I was, when I did some research after sort of starting the, the first book uh, and I found that it was sort of an empty category, I was pretty surprised. I mean, it's, it is, like you say, it's a really rich uh, location for a whole bunch of things to come up. And, and that's why I was so excited to put them there uh, because it, it does lend itself to so many different kinds of possibilities. Absolutely. I mean, and was he ever like as a character, did he go through like, well, maybe he's a pilot, maybe he's, uh, you know, in air traffic control, anything where was it air marshal from the start? I was air marshal from the start. I've spent a ton of time uh, for my day job, sort of flying all over the place, all over the world. Uh, I spent a ton of time on airplanes and in airports, at least before COVID grounded us all. Right. <laughs> And so when I was looking for uh, sort of a location to set this series, you know, everybody has their city. John Sanford has Minneapolis, right? And Michael Connolly has LA. And as I looked around, I mean, I'm a Navy brat. And so I don't have a real hometown. You know, I'm intimately familiar with beyond where I live right now. And so in starting to think about, well, well, where is my town? Where do I belong? Uh, I started to think about airports and, and how much time I spend in them. And the second I made that connection, it really sort of opened up the door to, well, what kind of person would be investigating crime inside an airport or on an airplane? That was an air marshal. Well, that, that all makes sense now. I mean, with that much time being spent in airports, and, and, is, and this is true, you've flown over a million miles commercially? 
Yeah, I'm probably close to two. Oh my god! And, and is it still? Are you sick and tired of it? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know it's one of those funny things. Since writing the books, it has brought an extra dimension to traveling that has really, I think, kept it from getting to rote. For social media, for example, I post a piece of airport art on Instagram every day. It's a picture from an airport of of something pretty you might not have noticed as you were rushing from you know one gate to another. Right. And so in plotting out the books and in, in thinking about all these issues, it, it gives me a reason to be there and things to look for that keep it interesting and, and keep it fresh, frankly. So uh, do you have a favorite airport that you have uh, spent time in? That's a really good question. And, you know, I have a few favorites right now. My favorite and the one I've been doing the most with on social media these past few weeks is uh, San Francisco's SFO. Right. uh, Because that's the setting for departure. And a ton of the book happens inside the airport. Now, are you the kind of guy who can get on an airplane and right away spot an air marshal sitting in a seat? Do you have a radar for that now? (laughs) I kind of do. You know, as I was really starting to write Walker, I was sort of paying attention and, you know, doing a bunch of research on air marshals and sort of trying to get inside how they work and all that stuff. And and I started, I thought, to have an, an eye for what to look for and, and how to spot them. And, you know, they're not on every flight and you're never 100% sure about it, but but no, I, I think I probably have a better eye for it than just sort of your average traveler. Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, uh, one of the things that it, it's always hard to explain to people who don't write is that the writing process is so much more than just sitting down at the keyboard and, and typing. I mean, so much of it is just sort of sitting and thinking for a long time. Yeah. Is is your time waiting at the gate for so much of your life? Is, is that where you're coming up with plots? I mean, does that become a crucial part of your writing regimen? A little bit. You know, I I definitely do some stuff in terminals. I definitely do some stuff on planes. You know, like you said, it, it's mostly trying to find uninterrupted large blocks of time. The real writing from scratch really, really requires you to put your butt in the seat. But but yeah, my, my process does definitely involve a period of sort of thinking and, and plotting out and things like that. I tend to work up a like a two to four page synopsis that kind of gets me the the beginning and the end and a few things in the middle. And then that's sort of my Bible for the story. And And there's definitely things that happen as you try to get from A to Z, right? And that's where the, you know, the iterative excitement happens because you don't always know what's going to happen in the middle. And then obviously, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but Walker is the kind of guy that he, just by virtue of his job, he's going to run into trouble every day. And, and you know, a potential novel length plot is staring him in the face every time he clocks in to work. I mean, that's the hope. You, yeah, well, <laughs> but how do you avoid having it be something that just becomes rote? Because I, I think the difference is like if, you know, let's say it was, you know, just a very unlucky flight attendant who, you know, <laughs> oh, someone got murdered on my flight again. And that just becomes, right. you know, an outrageous coincidence. But Walker is really someone who is he's going to encounter trouble on, on an average Tuesday. But how do you decide what's enough trouble that he gets into to make yep. it like, OK, this is worthy of a full novel? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. One of the things I wanted to avoid was kind of the the rope plotting that you're talking about, where it's like, oh, it's the you know it's the fifteenth terrorist in a row or the twenty first right. serial killer in a row, because <laughs> at a certain point you're like, just move, right? <laughs> just change jobs. But the beauty of Walker is every story can be a different kind of adventure, and that's. That's really what I wanted to bring. You know, every adventure is is similar in that it's Walker and, and you know you're going to get certain things out of me. I like to think that, you know, there's always going to be some pretty hardcore action. Um, there's going to be some technology in there because of who Walker is and who I am. But like Takeoff is really a bodyguard on the run story. Right. You know, False Horizon the sequel was really sort of a local mystery and almost like an episode of Justified, right? Like uh-huh. that's, that's kind of the way I think of it. Departure is a, a missing person's case. There's so many different kinds of things that happen in airports, whether it's you know smuggling or terrorism or whatever it is that, you know, my hope would be that, you know, we can get out, you know, pretty far in this series before you start seeing things happening again. Oh, definitely. Well, you know, but it's not enough for you to throw Seth into these life or death situations. You've also given him this potentially debilitating anomaly with his brain mm-hmm. where, where he needs this constant stimulus with, you know, background sounds to keep his brain occupied so that he can then focus on the things that are important to him. I mean, wh- why pile on to this guy? He's already in <laughs> enough trouble. Yeah, no, it, it it serves a couple of purposes. I wanted to have Walker be an outsider in the air marshal community. I wanted him to sort of be on his own. I wanted him to be a little isolated and a loner. And so the whole medical thing definitely plays into that. He's, you know, really, really, really smart. I mean, his brain goes so fast that that's why he needs he needs the stimulus to, to sort of keep his brain occupied. The earpiece thing is also sort of a narrative cheat because I bring a lot of technology to the books. Um, but Walker can't necessarily be an expert in everything at every given moment. Right. I needed some way to have him study up, but not bore the reader with, and then he went to the library for five hours. Right. Um, or have him like disappear because I needed I needed the action to be go 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 right. So the idea that he can study up you know in the background through osmosis while he's doing other things lets me cheat the timeline a little bit. And frankly, like as a third reason, it gets him into a lot of fun trouble. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to settle a debate right now uh, because Uh-oh. you you are a, an early morning writer and I am a nighttime after midnight writer. Okay. Which one of us is right? <laughs> Dude, it's whoever gets the words on the pages, I think. <laughs> I find that the only time I can write from scratch is that first thing in the morning thing because it's like before my day job kicks in, before... I'm worried about, you know, what's for dinner? Or do I have to hit the grocery store? You know, any of the regular stuff of life, I can just really sit down and be in the zone. I can edit almost any time of day. And and nighttimes are great to edit because it can be quiet and stuff. But 
but I find the the energy and the zone to really write from scratch. I only have it at the moment. All right. Well, before uh, I do let you go, I've, I I want to uh, pitch a, a great marketing idea I have for you. Is uh, have you ever considered like every time you get on a flight, you you leave a signed book in that seat pocket in front of you and uh, sort of surreptitiously spread these books throughout by some the next person that comes on finds that and then they've got a great uh, airplane read right there there in their pocket it is so funny you say that i have snapped a couple of photos of the seatback pocket because on a couple of the last flights i was on there's a little sign i think because people are putting like their tablets and stuff in the seatback pocket uh -huh. there's a little sign that says literature only <laughs> and so I tweeted that out and was like, I guess I don't qualify. <laughs> I do find lots of readers on planes. Um, it's a great place to find people who really like books. Yeah. Um, and whether they're sitting near you or next to you or whatever, you know, it's, a, it's a great place to sort of start up conversations about what people are reading, you know, what they're looking for, what they like, what they don't, all that kind of stuff. Well, and I think that's every writer's fantasy. It's got to be in everyone's top five is you're getting on an airplane and you're going to go somewhere and you're walking down the aisle trying to find your seat and you happen to see somebody holding your book in their hand and they're about to dig in for this oh, yeah. six hour flow. Oh, that would just be the greatest. It's never happened to me. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree. That would be that would be the dream. Even just seeing my book at, a, at an airport bookstore. I yeah. think it would be really, really cool. That's never happened yet. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. All right, that's it. Quick and easy. Uh, I've got a few more shows before we go on a fall hiatus so I can finish several projects of my own and take a little bit of a breather. You can always keep up with the latest episodes at writertypespodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at WriterTypes, and you can find all of the author's books that you heard on this episode and past episodes at your local indie bookstore. Thanks for listening.